Welcome, everyone. You're listening to Pop Health Week, sponsored by Health Innovation Media. I'm Greg Masters, your co-host, and I'm joined in the virtual studio by my co-host, Fred Goldstein, CEO of Accountable Health LLC, and Douglas Goldstein, noted keynote speaker, also known as eFuturist. And together, do this show weekly and launched last week with our special guest, David Nash, founding and current dean of the Jefferson School of Population Health. For those of you who have, may have missed the show, go to pophealthweek.com and click on From This Week in Accountable Care to Pop Health Week. We do this as a month-end wrap-up of what's hot in the news in terms of population health and its derivative conversations. We speak with entrepreneurs, leaders, and innovators in the space. And on June 3rd, which is our next broadcast, our special guest is Jennifer Draco, who is the Executive Vice President of Population Health with Sun Health, followed by Kave Safavi, right? Kave Safavi. Followed by Kave Safavi, MD, who's the Managing Director of Global Health and Industry Lead at Accenture. And on June 17th, Stephen Bloomberg, Senior Vice President, Atlantic Care and Executive Director of Atlantic Care Health Solutions and ACO in New Jersey. So before I kick it over to Fred, who's going to walk us through our agenda today, we've got several items that are hot off the press, specifically the Evelyn IPA and this whole brouhaha around quantifying self, data breaches, and the spinoff at No MU Without Me conversation. Let's talk a little bit first about Doug being new to the team today. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. I'm an e-futurist, and I'm an innovator, and I work with uh, health leaders and leading health organizations to uh, transform health, healthcare, and fitness, because fitness, health, and healthcare all go together to create healthier people and communities. So uh, I'm an innovator, a catalyst, and an e-futurist, and I love to partner with organizations to uh, help them make positive changes in the world. And I might add that Doug is my co-host over at Health Innovation Media. And if you just dial up This Week in Health Innovation, we've been posting a number of the excellent interviews that my colleague Doug Goldstein uh, masterfully recorded at the Hymns event in Chicago. So, Fred, since you are the curator of our What's Hot in the News style broadcast today, tell us what's on, on tap today. What are we going to talk about? Well, thanks a lot, Greg. And, Doug, it's great to have you on the show, too. Looking forward to working this every month with the two of you. Today, we're going to be talking about two key issues that recently came up. The first is Evelyn Health. Evelyn was launched in 2011. Uh, by UPMC Health Plans and the Advisory Board Company, and they've recently announced that they're going to be doing an IPO. So we'll open up with that today. And the second topic that we'll be working on has to do with you and your healthcare data. There was a recent article in the Washington Post that discussed this, and we'll be getting into that as well as meaningful use and other issues. So why don't we first start with Evelyn, guys? How's that sound? Sounds good to me. Yes, so today we'll start with Evelyn Health and their IPO, and let me give you a little bit of background. As I said, they were founded in 2011 by UPMC Health Plan, the advisory board group, and are based in Arlington, Virginia. Their offering 
include solutions to advance value-based care, integrated technology, and tools. Their work begins with a blueprint that they provide for their clients, which is a roadmap that defines the target market. They then go on after the blueprint to implement tailored clinical programs, high-performance network optimization, leaderships, scalable back office infrastructure, organizational governance and design, and data integration. They've been partnering with groups and recently announced that they'll be going public. A lot of questions from that S1, and clearly it's hit the blogosphere and other areas. There was a recent comment on ACO Watch by you, Greg, and I'd like to get your opinion as we first look at it, and then we'll delve into the topic. Well... All I can say is when, as, as I was reading and I'm, I'm looking at their website right now in the about Evelyn, it says Evelyn helps progressive health systems lead, build, and own the path to value-based care. No matter your current state of transition, we partner with you to drive real lasting information from the inside out. And as I was reading through the S1, at least scanning the management uh, discussion of their business model and their future, the first thing that struck me was, wow, this sounds a lot like Healthion. You know, it's a business model on the come, which is reasonably cast inside the context that, yeah, we're shifting from production to value, and there's a bridge there, and there's probably a role for third-party intermediaries, and tech is a big play here and yeah it probably makes sense but uh, my question on on that blog post was is this kind of a healthy on 2.0 ambitious uh, but likely to implode after some of the key assumptions don't deliver and uh, I know what you did Fred was dig a little bit deeper in inside the the financials in that s1 and I don't know is it pretty well it's interesting they've Obviously, been showing some severe losses. Those losses are going up, and as they comment on in the S1, there's they expect those losses to continue into the foreseeable future. So there clearly are some issues around the financials, and do they have a path to profitability? I guess the larger question might be, Greg and Doug, are we looking at a situation like the earlier years, or is there a new change? What's different now in the healthcare landscape that might allow them to be successful? Well, I think we have to talk about what the dimensions of success are. I mean, they, they're trying to engineer a whole new way of uh, managing risk with providers, and they're competing against the optimums of the world. And what we're trying to get out of healthcare is excessive waste and administrative overhead. So I think it's a huge challenge to basically say we're trying to become more efficient but let's add on all these layers of overhead to this process of delivering and supporting uh, individual family and population health. Yeah, Doug, I think you bring up an interesting model of a question because what they essentially said in their S1 is we believe there's a trillion dollars of excess, excess expenses in the healthcare space and yet nowhere do they show them taking that out of the space. In fact, they show the market growing by another trillion dollars over the next couple of years. So I'm wondering, is it funds they're going to make off an increasing and growing market, or are they really going to go and save money and end up with funds through some sort of a risk-based contract or some value-based contract where they're sharing in savings? I mean, we're creating more middlemen or middle people to this process. I mean, do we not need the health plan if if Evelyn is there? I mean, how many more layers when ultimately as a citizen and a consumer and sometimes a patient, 
If I have a dollar to spend on my health care, I want that to go to the doctor or the hospital or who's ever delivering and supporting what I need, not necessarily more administrative burden. Yeah, I think that uh, that's great. Doug, I think you went right to the issue, and Fred, certainly if there's a trillion estimated in waste, then why is this just a continued rising tide in in total spend? I, I don't really get that, but maybe on the pro side here is um, uh, advisory board, pretty talented group. They've been, they're not new to capitation, they're not new to managed health care, they've written tomes of how to survive under uh, capitated payment systems back in the 90s. So they're a credible bunch, pretty talented. UPMC, uh, recent merger with uh, one of the, the health plans uh, as a hospital system. They've got some culture integration there to deal with. Uh, they're not a Kaiser. They're not a mature, risk-bearing, risk-managing entity. Might the advisory board compensate for some of that bridge, if you will? I don't know. Those are relative pros, possible cons. Um, I, this may be, a, you know, kind of a faith-based uh, move here that they can actually manage risk with the aid of a third party. Yeah, I think faith-based is a good way to look at this. We've essentially got an organization that is reaching out and saying to providers, we have a solution for you. We know this is coming. The Medicare has just recently announced their CMS that they're going to move to a much higher percentage of value-based reimbursement to providers. Providers need the tool sets and expertise to manage that. This organization could conceivably provide that. Obviously, although they say they are a leader in the organization, later on under their risks they discuss the fact that there are other organizations that are larger, better financed with higher technology and further along that they potentially could compete with. So are they the ones that are going to be able to aggregate this and provide true success for the providers? I think we'll just have to wait and see. I don't know that any of the providers yet in the ACO model or a large percentage have been able to show savings yet. Obviously, yeah. quality measures can be moved, but savings is the issue. And one thing I omitted in my little narrative there is that, you know, they're an academic health center. And they're not typically known as the low-cost provider in any particular marketplace, nor necessarily nimble in terms of uh, innovation and, and, and so forth. So, you know... Um, I guess we'll, we, we shall see. Doug, any final comments on that? Well, I think it depends on what we define as success, right? I mean, is success going public and then selling to a bigger fish? Uh, or is, and building infrastructure that that bigger fish needs? Or is success actually bending the uh, cost curve and improving the population health status? I, I think they're trying to do both, but ultimately... Shareholders uh, and funders are interested in selling to the bigger fish, I believe. Yeah. Well, and I think if you look at the uh, the S1, you'll see that throughout the document, it's pretty clear that those initial investors will probably do fairly well. Those who come in later will be diluted, as they talked about from their initial price, will not match the uh, book value of the organization. So they'll have a downward revaluation of their shares. And the other issue is that the three founders essentially are released from any non-competes after the sale and can go out after business as they would like, including competing directly with the organization. 
<laughs> Oops, I guess. <laughs> I guess you know, it's, 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 I, I won't. I won't name any names, but we all have high-level friends in these organizations, and uh, we have great respect for their work. Yeah, right. And uh, it's interesting some of the scuttlebutt yeah. I heard from, uh, you know, the advisory board side about, you know, these are not necessarily smooth relationships between the initial funders and where Evelyn is. And part of this is an exit strategy for those initial funders to take their risk right. off the table. And you bring up another issue, interesting point that came out in the S1, which is for a, a number of them, uh, four of their largest partners account for 76% of their current revenue. And they announced in, later on in the document that one of those four is leaving in 2017. So they don't say why or what the potential impact is, but clearly it's somewhere between 25 and 14% of their current revenue will be minimized significantly in 2017. Well, the, the losses that, um, the losses you shared with us in getting ready for this was what was it uh, 50 million and 50 million in revenue 30 million in losses on top of that and then the next year was a hundred million in revenue and 50 million on losses on top of that correct so yeah I'm thinking at what what's, point what's do they the, begin I'm, to change the ratio I'm thinking I'm thinking that uh, that line uh, <laughs> You know, the, are you feeling lu Clint Eastwood, you know, in uh, the movie, like, are you feeling lucky today? <laughs> are you going to bet on this one? So uh, what they really have going for them is, um, you know, in the 90s, these tectonic shifts weren't quite tectonic yet. Uh, in other words, uh, you know, uh, the imperative to transform wasn't really as uh, uh, as poignant as it is today it was more optional back then today it's not optional and now that cms is sort of uh up the ante with the 50 percent in value-based payments by 2018 um these are all other factors and let's let's face it employers are fed up you know uh, the only way insurance companies seem to be staying in the marketplace these days is by massive cost shifting through high deductible health plans and even at that premiums are beyond the reach of uh, most people to reasonably afford so the you know what what's in their favor is is that is the macro perspective is uh it, it, it is going to demand that something that this stuff happens and it's just not conversation in boardrooms i just have a quick question uh, anybody check vegas on those odds of uh 50 of value-based payment being in 2018 <laughs> I, I don't think the government can move that fast i really don't think they uh -huh. can I've yeah, never well, seen him move that fast. Touche. It's a good point. <laughs> I guess we'll have to wait and see for that one, too. Obviously, <laughs> given this IPO, the market today is fairly hot. Uh, the market for healthcare oh. stocks is very hot. So now is the time to go. I guess for the three of us, we'll have to right. wait and see what's right. the outcome a few years right. down the road. Do they hit it or not? Right. Right. I do want to say one thing, though. But this era of risk shift is so much more complex than the previous era of risk shift that the kind of infrastructure that Evalent or Optum or some of these other entities, it's completely new infrastructure that's needed because of the, uh, well, here's primary care risk, but we're not, you know, they're, they're shifting risk in bundles or in sub-segments of the population. And people, in, it, it, we're not going to have, it's going to be a long time till we have everybody uh, aligned with an organization like a Kaiser, which is a true integrated delivery system. 
Right. So I'll just just add one thing. If in fact this is correct that a trillion and IOM has said thirty percent of healthcare costs are waste, fraud, and abuse, why aren't these fully integrated systems at least twenty percent cheaper than the other plans in the market? Yeah, I think we still got an overall issue that at the end of the day, pulling costs out of this healthcare system and and lowering reimbursement as. Rick Scott has said, "What industry, you know, is going to raise their hand and say, take thirty percent out of me?" Oh God, you had to bring up Rick Scott, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> and I live in the state. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, have we sort of squeezed the blood out of this one, uh, or is there more, Fred? I think that's a pretty good wrap there, guys. There's a bunch in there, and uh, I'm sure you can pull some good stuff out if we need yeah. to tr- trim that down a bit. Well, I don't know about odds okay. uh, on this one, but I, I think Doug's right, and I think in all likelihood the threshold of success here is going to be early exits by the uh, by the founders. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'll second that vote there. Yeah, yeah. Oh, are, are we are we still being recorded? Yeah, <laughs> we are. Okay. okay. So, okay, and uh, what's next, Fred, on your uh, on your curation list? The next topic we're going to move to is there was a recent Washington Post article entitled "The Revolution Will Be Digitized" by Ariana Cha, May 9, twenty fifteen, and we're also discuss some related news. Essentially, this article talked about the incredible amount of data now being tracked and that will be tracked in the future by wearables, implantables, people feeding up their device uh, information and the possible benefits of that obviously to the individual or science to better understand themselves as well as some of the issues associated with that. So as I look at this I take the lens of the data is obviously of value it's very good and can be used extremely positively for an individual but it also depends on whose hands it gets into and and their ethical behavior we've seen a lot of issues that we'll discuss around share care and not share care but around these health plans with their data and getting their data hacked we've got uh, the NPR uh, story that I think you're going to touch on, Doug, and I think it's a really interesting issue that we're perhaps running into too quickly without enough understanding of what some of the downsides might be to that. So, what are your thoughts on that, Doug? Well, first, the quantified self movement is is not new. Um, Wired featured it on the cover of their magazine back in 2009, and it even dates way before that. So, I think the real issue is not is what what kind of people will adopt the quantified self elements and what do you want to track and how frequently do you want to track it and uh, that's that's the real challenge so quantified self is here and it is growing uh, I think it remains to be seen whether the frequent flyers of the healthcare systems are going to use that to optimize their health or are we dealing with you know, 20, 30s, and select other groups within other age categories that are uh, dedicated to trying to uh, treat themselves, you know, like a car where we track the oil, the gas, the temperature, all those things on a regular basis. So how much of this do you think is, obviously the quantified self-movement has been around for a while. I've spoken on it at a conference a couple of years ago. As you said, Wired featured it. We also have this issue. A buddy of mine picked up a new phone one day and 
a couple weeks later, he calls me up. He said, you're not going to believe it. Suddenly something popped up on my screen and told me how many steps I did that day. I didn't know it was tracking that. So how much of this might be just being fed through the system that we're completely unaware of? A lot of it. I mean, the amount of unawareness in this mobile world where everything is digitized, all our movements, all our activities are being captured by our phone. Um, our purchasing behaviors are captured by our credit cards. Those data sets are being aggregated uh, in ways that are uh, helpful for us or potentially nefarious. Uh, I just heard NPR did a story on auto insurance companies and they're looking at purchasing purchasing patterns, busyness and they're running certain, not all of them, running algorithms to say, oh you're accident free but if I raise your rate, you're going to be too busy to change insurance companies and you've got enough money to handle that. So they're they're scoring people to assess whether they can raise rates. It's constant variable pricing just like variable pricing you wait to the next if you have to fly somewhere tomorrow you're paying a higher rate but now that higher rate could be higher or lower based on my income and other data the airline or the insurance company have about me rather than just oh you're one day away we're going to charge you more oh you're one day away you have more disposable income you're going to see a different price than someone who doesn't have that disposable income See, that's that's exciting. (laughs) Oh, yeah. So not only are we potentially going to see them rating our health insurance based on the physical activity and eating information that we're providing on the backside, but potentially they could do it based on our likelihood to drop the coverage or not if the price was raised by 50 bucks. Is that what you're saying? In what they do with the car insurance? I I think the health insurance realm has different regulatory factors affecting how they raise rates, but uh, than the car insurance company. But I'm saying that the big data sets are being aggregated, and they're being aggregated by everybody's a data broker and everybody's a data aggregator, and the biggest problem in this whole situation is me as the citizen or the patient who's sharing data on LinkedIn or Instagram or whatever venue I'm sharing data, I'm not being monetized for it. Nobody's paying me. I'm not getting microtransactions to share my fitness health, except perhaps Walgreens is on that track with their balance reward programs. So people are making real dollars by sharing their data with Walgreens, redeemable in their stores. Not only are we not getting paid for the data, but we can't even say whether or not they can't use it. They just grab it, right? That's correct. Yeah, unfortunately, it's more often than not in the fine print of uh, do you accept or not. And once you sign over that... Who knows where it goes from there? The, the thing that troubles me about what you're saying, Doug, is what troubles me about what I just heard you say, Doug, is um, if, if all of this exquisite talent is, is being uh, called into play to leverage opportunities to essentially screw me, you know, about whether or not I can pay attention long enough to realize that I'm not getting value from, you know, the premiums I'm paying. Uh, you open that up on the health side, 
I mean, my God, there's all sorts of opportunities to risk stratify from big data sets that put me, the consumer and user, at at the last one in the line to be to have standing and consideration. So I find that you know very troubling. Well, and for the in my assessment of the leaders in the field, it's the health plans that are really building the infrastructure and and the assets to be able to do that. Um, so they are definitely in lead, and they the the providers generally have lacked the resources and the vision to build the consumer um, CRM, consumer relationship management, customer relationship management infrastructure needed to know everything about everybody in the communities they serve. Health plans are on an entirely different track and two to four years ahead of the providers in building those CRM systems. We've got quantifying self, we've got people who are actively doing it. Some people, Doug already noted, are doing pencil and paper, not necessarily digitized. Uh, you're in the demographic that one might say isn't necessarily uh, come first to mind as being a quantified selfer. You, you and actually that's all three of us, yet we, we have periodically been known to track uh, using apps on phones. When you go to these quantified self meetings, uh, what's the age spread there? Are you uh, are you a minority? I tend to be a little towards the higher age end than others. Uh, you know, I've played with the various tracking devices, Fitbit, Garmin, Google Glass, you know, my phone, different mobile apps. I think they're a benefit. Ultimately, the key to that is to put some engine on them a brain in the cloud per se that goes ahead and says not only tracks my data but makes it actionable back to me through some sort of unique and individualized messaging system obviously the retailers have done that eBay and Amazon and Google know so much about us that they can trigger these things to get us to buy stuff and you're beginning to see that movement into the population health world in terms of changing our own behavior as I talked about in my one blog you know ultimately we'll probably end up having an app that essentially is monitoring us all the time. It's linked to our health plan. It's linked to our personal health record, EMR. It's linked to the pharmacy. And it says, hey, Fred, I just noticed you don't have your flu shot. You're two blocks away from a Walgreens. They're doing shots now. And by the way, your wife wants you to get that shot. And that's going to make me become engaged and walk in and get that shot. Now, that's obviously a, what I would consider a positive use of all this data, including the GPS tracking, etc. But you could see where on another angle that could potentially become a negative and somebody could use that to monitor my behavior and perhaps be less likely to offer me a health plan or charge me more. We know that brokers now troll Facebook pages before looking at signing up groups. So there are a lot of issues associated with this and privacy, etc. Well, I don't know. The question is, as all this stuff commingles to come together in some type of ecosystem, I wonder who's really driving it. And I just don't see the individual as, as being at the center of consideration. I, I see us as individuals being, shall we say, we need some protection. Right, and I think it gets back to that issue you raised earlier. We don't really understand what's being used. It's in the terms of service. That thing's 30 pages long if you happen to scroll down the whole thing. And then you click accept, then you move on. And uh, that data is now being shared, sold, and used. And then we also have the other individuals who are just plain hacking into these big healthcare databases to grab the data, which in articles I've read 
are considerably more valuable data sets than our credit card data sets or things like that. Because what they're essentially saying is when you have health data on a person, you can change your ID of your card. You can get a new number, but you can't necessarily change your health care data. So it's something you're stuck with for life. So it becomes very valuable. And they're actually using this to create fake personas, etc., that they then can go and use to create fraud against the health plan. And ultimately, I think you'll see possibly some of it being posted like we just saw with the um, hack of that dating site. Oh, yeah. Wonderful. Okay. So, so quantifying self, don't see that reversing issues around privacy and ubiquitous adoption across age cohorts and so on and so forth, leading into uh, the whole question around uh, how it relates on the healthcare side to meaningful use and adoption of technology in order for patients to have uh, greater health literacy and therefore the capacity to engage the provider community more effectively and purposefully and manage their needs in the healthcare ecosystem with some degree of prudence. Yet on the other side of that, we're hearing, gee whiz, data breaches notwithstanding, all these other issues we're talking about in healthcare notwithstanding, privacy, etc. The government, as in the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, decided to back off on the threshold that had been established around uh, measuring the adoption of EHR systems through meaningful use. Do you want to talk about that, Fred, and what that brings up in terms of the counter response? Well, that was very well said, but you didn't let me get the last word in on the previous topic. And I just want to throw out there seven milliseconds. So within seven milliseconds of you doing a search on your phone or your computer, your data has been sold multiple times about that search. So that's the last word on the big data piece. <laughs> Gee whiz, I, I'm, I'm sorry I spoke so soon. <laughs> and it's that's, nice to know my data is of so value they need yeah. it that quickly. Is this 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 is like high frequency front end trading, isn't it? It's like you you're intense out there ahead of time so people can, you know, you know, jack up the price knowing there's someone in the market. Well, the interesting thing is Predalytics is really uh Predalytics which has just been acquired by uh Waltalk, right? They they're they're a leader in intention and building intention profiles around searches. They're doing really incredible stuff around that. So, yeah, yes. we have leaders in healthcare. Shout out very, to Chris, uh, shout out to Chris and, and Hari, by the way. That I'm sure they're both happy about that. I'm sure they are, and hopefully we'll get them on a show coming up in a couple of weeks or months yeah, to talk yeah. about that transaction potentially, or at least what they're doing. Yeah. So, well, yeah, back to the meaningful use question and issue you raised. Um, interesting. I know that the uh, advocates are in particular a bit upset that we're moving from a 5% standard to just having one individual go through that that is the level of success required to get your meet your meaningful use requirements. I think it's interesting because the providers typically end up getting these proposals sent out to them and ultimately come back and say, no, it's too difficult for us to do this. It's too expensive. We can't figure it out. We need to focus on medicine. So I wonder at what point we actually get systems created that meet the needs of the individual so they can they can say I can access my data it's there I understand what it is it's presented in a meaningful and useful way and is this a way to possibly not have to meet that requirement what do you, what do you think Doug? Uh, well the, the first is the the meaningful relaxation of the regulatory issues 
it, it doesn't change the fact that a core necessity for every um, doctor health system provider in the country is to know their customers and that's that customer relationship management infrastructure and being able to interact with people wherever they might be through technology enabled connections whether it's a telephone call or whether it's an app enabled dialogue or a telemedicine virtual care visit so it's it's really imperative that we connect with people and document interactivity not because the government wants us to do it but because it's the right thing for me to do in, in supporting me in my medical or fitness or health care so they need to do it the question is they're just burdened by a lot of other regulatory and so they push back on actually documenting the amount of time people interact with them uh, but they're they're sitting uh, you go back to the railroad analogy. The railroads don't control the auto industry because they were a railroad business, not a transportation business. And health systems are in the same way. They're a medical business. They're not a health business, despite our attempts to relabel them for the most part. And there are exceptions. And within every health system, there is that part of that organization that is truly shifting from a medical focus to a health a predictive anticipatory focus than a reactive focus there you have it people that's why we call him <laughs> e-futurist <laughs> so let me let me strike back a little bit on this idea that the system has met the requirements for one uh, Greg I would assume you and Doug and I are all different individuals we all respond to different things we some of us might like video more then we like audio or might like to read it more or, or get our data through another individual. Yet we're telling the healthcare systems that if you can just get one of us to do it, you've solved the problem and you meet the requirements. When we know that the biggest issue we face is that we all are individuals and, and as people we respond to different things. So we begin to need to begin to think about how do we develop systems that actually meet the individual's needs and not just say that you've met one and you're okay. At least that's my opinion on this issue. Well, as you noted, there's a lot of, of the uh, patient advocates who are uh, rather uh, loudly protesting that this is a cave by CMS. However, there's another point of view or a way to look at it that, that merits some consideration and that is simply uh, irrespective of the differences between the three of us and everyone else out there, uh, if you set up, if you look at the infrastructure as plumbing, you know, whether you, so if, if you set up the plumbing in order for the system to perform, whether it performs for one, whether it performs for one or 100 or 1 million doesn't necessarily matter. It's the infrastructure that's functional. So the argument is, hey, They'll get focused on the downgrade from 1% to 5% to 1%. Look at, is the infrastructure built out? And then the question is, is there then market demand and provider adoption sufficient to make building out that highway worth the money? Well, I think the money's already been spent on building out a lot of that highway, so I would hope that we're getting some value for it. And I do agree that if you've set up the plumbing, but let's say you set it all up with very narrow pipes, and only certain things can flow through that plumbing. What about the other people? So I think at the end of the day, we need to begin to get, as providers, as, as 
Doug talked about, begin to consider the person and how do we get that individual to begin to engage in their health and begin to interact with us the healthcare system, which is a part of their overall health, maybe not the major component, but a piece they need to engage with. And are we creating systems that think about that person at the end of the day versus just the technical feasibility of getting somebody through it? Well, maybe we can get uh, e-patient Dave on the show to talk a little bit more about that. He's got a blog post up there on the A Call to Action for two new media items. One is Call to Action, No MU Without Me. He's pretty uh, uh, clear on... Um, He's pretty clear on that. Well, there you have it. Uh, you know, we've just uh, touched the surface here a lot. These are deep issues, and they're pretty wide. So I'm sure we'll revisit them from time to time on our month-end wrap-up of what's hot in the population health uh, space. So I want to thank uh, my co-hosts, Fred Goldstein and eFuturist Douglas Goldstein. We do this month-end. We resume. This is being recorded on the memorial day weekend on sunday so we will air on wednesday at our regular time 9 a.m pacific noon eastern and our next live broadcast will be on june the 3rd with jennifer drago who is the executive vice president of uh, population health at sun health so for my co-host fred goldstein doug goldstein this is greg master saying bye now Rise when I gave the word Now when